you know, this job is really hard, but we do have a love for it, and it's the one we want at the end of the day. But, you know, it brings all kinds of complicated situations uh, at the same time. So that's what, kind of what we're talking about today um, with Dr. Tammy Stevens here. And so just a little bit about Dr. Tammy Stevens, if you don't already know her, she has over 20 years of experience with improving assessment practices for students. She has been a special education teacher, an educational diagnostician, an assistant professor, and she's currently a manager in clinical products for clinical product support and training at Riverside Insights. She, along with her colleague, Dr. Schultz, he's here with the audience with us today. Doc, thank you for joining, Dr. Schultz, have developed a methodology and training for improved assessment practices for diagnosticians, which they refer to as CSEP, which is the core select uh, um, evaluation process. There you go. Tammy has always been the one I know is looking out for me as a diagnostician. I know she understands what we go through because she's been there herself. And now in the midst of a diagnostician shortage, a referral crisis, she asks us to take a step back and just remember why we do what we do. She says that after years of telling stories about our students, it's time we told our own stories. So thank you, thank you for joining Dr. Stevens. Thank you so much, Nazi, for having me in Clubhouse today. And also I wanted to give a shout out to you for um, all that you do for our profession. I know we all appreciate the time and dedication that you put into um, these Clubhouse meetings and, and everything else that you do. So um, appreciate that and appreciate everyone being here today as well. All right. Thank you so much. I, I am really enjoying this, um, you know, talking to people and getting discussions going. I feel like in social media, we don't do it. We have sort of lost the art of discussion. And I'm really excited that to have an app where we can bring people closer together and discuss things that really matter to us. So you have always a project going on. Like first it was CSEP and then beyond the score and then CSEP 2.0. You were doing the survey for diagnosticians and this sort of like all accumulated to this final project. So what is this project? What are you, okay. what are you trying to accomplish? Yeah, yeah, it seems like, yeah, you're right. I always have a project going on. Um, enjoy working on projects. I don't know, maybe it's the researcher in me or the teacher in me, but, um, the thing is, like when I'm thinking about these projects, I'm not working on projects for the sake of working on them. Um, I want to ensure that the outcome and, and the stuff that we do do have a positive impact on our profession, as well as on the lives of the, the kiddos that we serve. So um, you mentioned CSEP. Obviously, CSEP's an on ongoing project with uh, Dr. Schultz and I, um, something that, again, came about due to some of the assessment issues that we were seeing in the field. Um, we were seeing kids being over-tested and over-focused on standard scores, limited focus on other data sources, um, et cetera. And, you know, being in the field and kind of seeing that and understanding the implications that it has um, on uh, the decisions that we make and um, the programming that we provide to our students. Uh, for Dr. Schultz and I, it was so, so important that we come up with another uh, alternative. And that's how kind of CSEP was developed. 
in response to that particular um, need in the field. The Beyond the Score, you mentioned BTS. That was also something that I had played around with for many years in my mind. Um, wanted to have like a platform for evaluators to get together to um, further develop their professional skills. Um, and it really wasn't until COVID hit that I really had the bandwidth to do that. And it kind of uh, launched me forward to um, provide those trainings um, to evaluators. And uh, it's been it's been a journey and it's been well received. And I conducted a survey last week um, on some uh, for some of the attendees of those programs. And I was amazed that 50% of the respondents were say, indicated that their professional development is coming from the Beyond the Score webinar series. So it's playing a huge uh, role within the field. Um, and then you've mentioned on here a couple of times the Bosco K-12. That's something that's that's ongoing as well. Um, and that's a, a, a platform that we are creating to help with the referral process. We were, really want to find a way, again, because we were finding that a lot of those referrals that um, evaluators are receiving are missing important data. So we're trying to find a way to kind of streamline that process uh, for the referral team as well as for the evaluator. So. Um, that is something that we're getting ready to launch. We do have a school district that's interested in piloting, um, which is exciting. And um, so stay tuned for, for that. But the newest project um, is something that I'm calling um, our why. And what I really want to do is kind of tell the story of the diagnostician. Um, I want to get a, a, a group of diagnosticians who are willing to write their story as to why they chose to enter the field of special education or become an evaluator um, and put all those together into an ethology, um, a compilation of stories. Um, like you said, I feel like we as evaluators spend the majority of our time writing other our students' story. And I think it's it's time for us to to focus on ourselves um, and put some of that that down on on paper. Um, and have it published so that we can have others read um, about why we dedicated our lives to serving our kiddos um, in the field of special education. I know Dr. Schultz often says, I don't think any of us come into the field, this uh, field thinking we're going to get rich. And it's so true. We're all here because we're giving individuals. And But there's been something in your life that kind of encouraged you to to go this route. So I thought it would be a fun, a little different activity, different project to get um, the evaluators to who are willing to submit their stories um, so that we can put those together and publish them in a book. Are you thinking too that maybe a shorter version might be in published in the dialogue? <laughs> maybe, yeah. Um, but right now I'm looking at something a little bigger. Um, I just want to just have a comp, uh, you know, a, a book of, of of individuals who have dedicated their lives to the field, just kind of talking about why. Why did mm -hmm. they? Why did you choose to come this route? Um, like you said, it's a very stressful job. Um, some of us came into the field because of our own personal experiences. Some of us maybe, um, you know, struggled in school ourselves, or maybe we had children that struggled. Um, you know, things like that. And I think it's just it would be a good read for not only other evaluators, but also other individuals who are thinking about entering the field. 
Right, especially with all everything that it presents, uh, you know, a lot of people are leaving the field just because of all the stressors and going on to find other things. You you say in your article, the profession in crisis, the special education profession is encountering intense pressure on multiple fronts, negatively impacting the efficiency and effectiveness of the referral and evaluation process. The authors broadly classify some of the existing stressors as increased workloads, recruitment and training challenges, complications from COVID, changes in the legal framework, basic structural uh, deficiencies. In each category, you had to actually go through and define them, contextualize them, and identify some of the complications that they produce that that's a that's a lot to take on in in a in a research um, article, is and I think there isn't a lot on our field. So I've had people ask me, well, which states have diagnosticians, and what where did what do diagnosticians do in these different states? And it's really hard to answer. I've looked and looked for articles, and the only one I can find is from NSAID from two thousand and eight, that kind of gives a summary of what diagnosticians do. But we really we really get put into this to categories like school psychologists and we don't do what school psychologists do we do have that educational background and i think it's really hard for people to understand the value of our profession so definitely um anything to help people understand that i think is a good idea yeah and you know all those things that you mentioned um in addition to just kind of uh, with that survey you kind of talked about, uh, we actually published the article in the dialogue, and it's the State of Special Education Referral and Assessment Process, the title. And what I was really trying to find out is because when we were out doing these trainings um, on CSEP, you know, we obviously focus on multiple sources of data. That's what policy states, and um, that's best practice, uh, looking beyond just a standard score. And a lot of the information that was being provided back to us was, oh, we don't get good data as part of our referral. Um, so what I really wanted to do there is kind of uh, conduct a survey to find out, was this something that was just like um, a local type of issue or was it more of a systematic issue across the state? And what we found was it was de it's definitely a systematic issue. It's something that's going on across the state um, and it's having these negative impacts on us um, as evaluators um, you know uh, just a brief uh, update to the survey we had 419 respondents and 90 percent of those were employed full-time majority of them worked in um, elementary level um, and then years of experience these were individuals majority of the individuals had you know 10 plus years of uh, five to uh, five plus years of experience. So they're not new, brand new um, diagnosticians or seasoned diags that completed the survey. And what I was really trying to find out is, okay, what are caseloads? What do they look like? Um, and so 56% of the individuals said that the caseloads were anywhere from 75 to 100 students, which I think is probably low because um, I've heard stories where Evaluators have, you know, many more individuals on their caseload, uh, but 75% of them reported that the referral packets are often missing important data. And of those, 77% um, said they spend two plus hours per case locating missing data that should have been a part of that referral already. Um, 
it went we if we went a little deeper into that there were actually some evaluators that said one of the options was um i just move forward with the evaluation i don't even go get the data because i don't have time and there was um about maybe five percent of the respondents that indicated that that's what they do um and then the average dnq rate uh, for initials were 31 percent of those referrals and um I also wanted to know, okay, parent referrals, how are they being uh, addressed? Um, are they automatically testing the kids when a parent requests? Because that's what I was hearing. And 55% of the respondents were saying that parent referrals resulted in automatic testing. And I think part of that goes back to not having the data there to support not testing. Um, so, you know, and it went on into kind of talking about the types of data that's often missing. And the number one data source that's, that's missing is the, um, the RTI data. And we know RTI, it's, there's some good RTI programs across the state. There's some not so good RTI programs. And I know uh, when Dr. Schultz and I first started out, we, that was our area of expertise. That was our area of interest was RTI. And we trained different districts on rolling out a good RTI program, et cetera, using CBMs, which I know you're a huge proponent of, which I love. Um, but it just kind of fizzled out. And I think um, our field, um, we need to, to bring back that RTI. We need to um you know i don't know we need to but the state needs to do more i think around establishing good rti programs or mtss programs across uh districts um but it's a problem absolutely i'm working on that problem i've been interviewing people who create and set and research rti and progress monitoring measures and it's all accumulated to actually being able to have a press release to interview Deanna Clemens, who is now the director at TEA of special programs. She's been, she's gotten a promotion. Um, and I think like I'm the first social media platform that she's actually gonna talk to people about in that new position. So You're that's cool. really exciting. <laughs> and one of the things we're gonna talk about and this is on June 2nd. Uh, one of the things we're going to talk about is the new tier system of supports, uh, the trainings. And I, I th from the way I understand it, she's, they've got a whole system of um, sort of rolling out coaching and, um, and um, cohorts to, of, of professionals. So you would, for example, get in a cohort and this is what I'm I'm going to ask her about. I'm not totally sure, but mm -hmm. do the trainings together. And of course, I'm going to be in a cohort. So of course, everybody is going to be in a cohort with me. We can we can talk on club Clubhouse because we'll have that social media <laughs> platform. But I'm doing the trainings myself um, at TEA Learn. So I'm hopeful that this is really going to help. Uh, so it, she seems to be a big proponent of RTI, and I. I really, it does give me a lot of hope that all the things that, you know, one of the things I bring up so many times is, hey, you say that RTI is a, is a general education responsibility. 
general education, stay, you know, people are told stay in our lane, stay in our lane and just to take care of the diagnosis and let the general education worry about the referral process and the RTI and all of that. But they forget that it was special education who established RTI in the first place. So, and most of the time we are the ones trained in our, in our universities to, to, to do the progress monitoring and the general education or not. And it's like, we, we have this expertise and you're not letting us contribute and be part of that team, not letting us be, come to the table and participate in the RTI process. Like you often say, um, uh-huh. actually helps the referral process. So, all right. So let me get to the next question. So what, what, um, what is your why? Why did you start this pro- project? And what, why did you start also as a diagnostician? Um, and why is it so important that we share our why? I think we've kind of already talked a little bit about that, but um, yeah. why we share our why with others? Well, it's interesting because um, a few weeks ago, I guess, um, Dr. Schultz and I keynoted at TEDA. And um, on my drive over to the location, I started thinking about, okay, with the introduction, um, you know, I felt like I, I needed to or wanted to talk about my my why. Um, we talk about all the credentials we have and the work that we've done, um, et cetera. Um, but I really wanted to kind of get people kind of thinking about not only their why, but also some of those implicit biases that we have and that we have to be aware of as evaluators. So what I did was during, for those of you who were there at TEDA, you, you saw this, but for those of you who weren't, I just wanted to kind of revisit it. But what I did is at the very beginning of the presentation, I added a couple slides, extra slides. And the one slide that I added was the picture that's on the advertisement for this session. Um, that's a picture, um, of a house out in rural Virginia. And I just put it up there and I asked the attendees, I'm like, so when you look at this picture and you think about the ch- a child that spent the majority of their life in this picture, what do you think the outcomes were for this particular student or this particular child? And, you know, some of the people in the audience were saying, you know, probably had academic struggles, maybe dropped out of school, um, trouble with the law was one, um, drug use, behavioral issues, et cetera. And then the next slide I talked about, well, let me tell you a little bit more about this child. So um, background information, both parents had dropped out of school in the fifth grade, so neither parent graduated from school. Uh, limited enrichment opportunities during childhood. So we, these, this child never went to the zoo, never went to museums. You know, we, it was always in that, in that environment, you know, that house that I was showing. Um, And then uh, parents were never involved in the child's school. So not even stepping foot in the school. So um, going, dropping the kids off to go in and pick up their schedules or check out, you know, their lockers or not coming to parent-teacher conferences and things like that. And then there was some emotional and behavioral, uh, you know, um, uh, physical abuse that happened in the house as well. And then uh, mother was pretty much uh, undiagnosed mental health issues. So I think there was a lot of um, depression going on with her, et cetera. So anyway, I then asked, okay, so now what do you think about the outcome for this child? And um, it was pretty much the same as before. Um, So then I calmly asked, I said, so what if I told you that child was me? 
and there was like shock on faces. And, you know, I said, you know, I stand here before you with a PhD, um, spent a life, had a lifelong career in, in special education. I was that child that sat in quiet in the class, internalized my pain, my um, struggles. I never acted out. I really was a perfectionist, which I think is probably why I, I went as far as I did in my education because of, you know, wanting to do well, wanting to, to do better in life. Um, I never thought I'd ever be presenting in front of a group of people. I remember being so shy and and didn't want to speak up and stuff like that. Um, was told I was not college material. So the trajectory and I remember going from elementary school to middle school, they gave th this test to everyone. And depending on how you performed on that test determined what route you went. If you they were preparing you for college or more of a, we had more of those uh, vocational schools too um, up in Virginia. So wasn't college material, um, et cetera. First person in my family to go to college and then to be the first person to get a PhD. Um, a lot about resilience. And, you know, my childhood, my why, my childhood experiences really shaped who I became. And it really impacted my interest in special education. I think um, I was, I've always been one that want to help and em empathize. Um, want to um, encourage, you know, individuals to do better for themselves, etc. Um, always rooting for the underdog, if you will, you know, things like that. So, you know, so the, the point of that is like, when part part of it is looking at that picture and, and thinking that, oh, a child who spent the majority of their life childhood in this house, the, those implicit biases that, you know, that child probably was in trouble or that child probably um, had academic struggles. Well, I did, but that didn't define who I who I became. And um, so I think it's important for us as evaluators to kind of keep that in mind, too, that just because a child has a certain is from a certain family or, um, you know, a certain upbringing, et cetera, does not dictate or we shouldn't you know, make this um, blanket, have this belief that they can't uh, pr progress and do well and um, have that assumption that a child that grows up in that type of environment and who's exposed to abuse is incapable of, achieve of achieving in life. And so I kind of look at it like being living proof that it can be done. I've had been blessed with having great people in my life throughout my undergrad, my graduate, my PhD program, everything that I've done, it's always, there's always someone there that's encouraging um, um, and, and kind of helping me along the way. So part of the, my why is wanting to give back and wanting to ensure that no other children that are similar to my upbringing are ever identified as having a disability based off of some of that, you know, um, criteria, et cetera. So and That's when you don't have somebody to support you, you find them, right? You you adopt them. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting because I've done a lot of research and read a lot about resilience. And um, one of the things that comes up over and over is that typically children who are resilient, who overcome some of those barriers earlier in life, 
there's always typically someone, whether it's a grandparent or an aunt or someone that has shown them that they believe in them um, or help them along the way. And for me, I had two people, really. I had my grandmother who did a lot for us to kind of shield us. And then I had my aunt who um, did, you know, things for us. My mother was the type of person that, um, you know, she put us out of the house at like 630 in the morning. This was like during the summer. Um, and we couldn't go back in the house until um, around six at night. So you're talking about four kids that are, we were out in the country. So we hung out, we had a clubhouse and stuff like that. But it was tough. And um, those two individuals showed compassion. And the same thing happened as I kind of progressed through my educational career, because I didn't think I'd ever go to college. My plan was to get a job in a factory like most people that grew up in my hometown did. Um, And I just, uh, you know, um, had someone encouraging me to go to college. I got married early. Um, He encouraged me to go to college and I went. And then when I went to college, I always had professors that made a difference. Um, I remember taking a research and special ed course. Um, I was working on my master's at the time. And um, this professor came up to me and he's like, have you ever thought about continuing on and getting your PhD? And I was like, really? You know, you believe that I could get a PhD? And um, and then like Dr. Kennison, um, many of you know him from TWU. Um, he was also another person that showed belief in me. And it just, uh, you know, it just it encouraged me to, to keep going. Um, and then I had Dr. Schultz try to drag me down, but that's another story. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> but yeah, but that's the thing. Like you have people that that do um you know come to assist you or to encourage you and things like that. And you know, and I'm just curious like what some of our other evaluators stories are. Like what are their what's their why? Like why did they choose this this field? Um and so that's why I'm really trying to get a get a list of individuals who who want to write their why and submit them so that we can put them together in a book and publish well, not just why we chose it but why we say it it after <laughs> yeah yeah true yeah uh-huh. that's a good point so um you are aware that our job's pretty stressful and you're aware of the challenges are we face and you you kind of describe some of these in the study i see i'm like looking at the study now i see uh these bars and this line graph that just goes up this mm-hmm. number of students 2017 to 2022 PEMS data and it's like OHI SLD dyslexia and it's just like up and up and up and um, I mean besides this the referral um, problems were there other things that you also found that were challenging to our um, profession yeah, the referral was the biggest thing, but of course the increased workloads due to the shortage of uh, having evaluators, that was a biggie. Complications of COVID also, um, mm-hmm. I think we still are dealing with those complications. I'm worried about um, in a couple years what it's going to be like when we have have kiddos being referred who um, during these uh, those early found- years where they're receiving their foundational skills, um, with the shortage of teachers, 
having long-term subs in the classroom or having, um, you know, subs rotating through the classroom. I'm worried about some of these kids not getting those basic skills and end up being referred um, when they get further into their education. And then how are we as evaluators going to know that, Mm -hmm. right? How are we going to know that they didn't receive appropriate instruction? Um, But those were the major uh, things. And, and like you said earlier, one of the, one of the questions was around um, having um, an evaluator involved in that pre-referral or that RTI process and having that individual in there kind of providing insight um, with regards to the data that's been collected, making recommendations. And there were some um, evaluators who reported that they are part of that process. And um, the findings were that when an evaluator was part of that process, there were better quality referrals sent through and less DNQs. So, I know evaluators are probably cringing now saying we don't have time to participate in that um, process, et cetera, because of all the testing that we have to do. And I acknowledge that, but I do think that if we were more proactive and we were involved at the front in the front end, it would reduce the number of students that were being referred and the quality of the referrals um, sent through. And you talked a little bit too about recruitment and training challenges. I know I've, I've, been a mentor for about five different diagnosticians going through their internships and depending on which university they go to mm-hmm. uh, you know you'll see different um training i mean there's one university that still re- requires them to train on a wj3 and a wyatt mm-hmm. two or something <laughs> yeah um, that's it's no, a really I- old tools and um, still teaching really old practices and um, outdated, you know, informa- sharing outdated information. Uh-huh. And it's just really hard, I think, when you have somebody who comes from a training program to c- kind of different training programs all over the te- all over Texas or all over um, to get everybody sort of on the same page with some of the, these best practices and assessments. Yeah, and then when we see a lot of these um, new diagnosticians who have went through these poor quality types of training programs, um, you know, they're posting on Facebook and stuff some of these questions that we think, I think, these are basic questions. Um, And it's kind of, it's concerning. Um, And that's part of the reason why we, you know, try to continue with you know, we can't do everything, but continue with offering complementary professional development to individuals. That, because some of the training programs are still focusing on just looking at the scores, the scores themselves, and not looking at other data sources and the importance of that. Um, so I think, yeah, there's work to be done. There's some really great programs here in Texas, as we all know, and there's some not so great uh, programs. And some individuals that post on Facebook will, who went, go through some of these programs that aren't so great, they're pretty um, vocal about it as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so that is a that is an issue. And I think with so many leaving the field, you know, um, with the burnout, and I think that's part of part of what I'm thinking with this project is, 
you know, it kind of helped us to kind of, uh, first of all, I think it'd be kind of therapeutic to go through and write. It can allow you to kind of recenter your focus uh, away from the stress. Like reimagine or re refocus on, well, why did, why am I doing this in the first place? Um, but also, uh, allowing you to kind of the evaluator to kind of share with others why they chose the field and, um, reading other people's stories about why they entered the field. Um, and maybe we can, some of these stories can encourage other individuals, um, to, to enter the field. Um, but, it's a, it's a, it's an issue. I know there's a lot that needs to kind of be um, kind of teased out and figured out with regards to, you know, workflows and um, all of that, but it is a little concerning um, to me. Like an identity crisis. It's like, we've got to mm -hmm. like find pride in our identity and our profession almost. Yeah. Uh, That's yeah. a good way to describe it. So, you know, another one of our challenges is, these advocacy groups um, out there, uh, you know, they're pushing laws. So we're having to keep up with all the laws changing. They're pushing um, things that end up in corrective action, legal mm -hmm. suits. You know, that that's a lot of pressure on us to, mm -hmm. to keep up with sort of all these advocacy groups and people who are advocating for the kids. And you know, disabilities is really a sensitive issue. So when you have advocacy groups, you know, people tend to listen to people who are advocating for children with disabilities because it's so sensitive. And, you know, a lot of times I was think I was reading about how there's a push to sort of change special education, the view of special education from a more medical model of let's diagnose and treat and put a slap a number on it, slap a label on it and treat it and um, move on to a more uh, sort of uh, a more sort of um, public health type of um, model where we mm -hmm. see that our schools um, and so many areas have just the whole school system and the way it works um, could have some kind of sicknesses in the system um, that we need to treat the whole system. And so I was, you know, and then the, the latest example is with, you know, the push for dyslexia. Um, and we know that kids do have um, characteristics that they're born with that do contribute to the risk for dyslexia. But we do also know there are a lot of really good early interventions that can prevent um, a lot of learning disabilities. So I was just kind of curious if um, you sort of, if you're, you're, if you have any ideas or you ever thought about solutions to this sort of problem of kind of just medicalizing disabilities rather than sort of looking at it from a more instructional um, point of view, like we have been raised in as diagnosticians from an educational point of view? Yeah, I mean, I think that at the end of the day, we just need to be, regardless of the model, et cetera, I think we just, we have to be proactive. We have to have systems in place where we can identify these kids early on. We have to be willing to collaborate because in the at the end of the day as well, you know, we are working together towards the same goal of identifying whether a child has a disability or not, or for those kids that are struggling who don't qualify, we still want to find a way to help them. So I think being proactive, being collaborative, 
um, when we're, and I, to identify these kids early. Um, and again, kind of going back to beating the drum of RTI. I mean, I just think the best way of doing this is to beef up these RTI programs that we have, these processes. Mm -hmm. And again, one of your big pushes, which um, was my area of focus when I went through my doctoral program and worked on my dissertation with CBMs, there's so much value in using CBMs. And um, now the way we've kind of conducted our RTI is having you know universal screeners that are on computers. And I understand moving to a more digital format. I'm not against that. But I do think that uh, the way we've tradition we traditionally use CBMs to help um, identify those kids who were struggling early on um, by conducting those universal screeners. We could also not only um, look at the individual child, we would be able to kind of look at whether there was a class-wide problem or if it's an individual problem uh, with the student based off of the way the students performed on these screeners. And that was another person that um, kind of took me under their wing when I was working on my master's degree at University of New Orleans, Dr. Gail Nocken. She brought me in and had me work on this federal grant with her. And part of that federal grant, we were going into school districts um, conducting universal screeners using CBMs. Um, and we would do everything for the teachers. We would give the, the CBMs. We would rank order the CBMs um, on a chart. We'd look at the median score for the class. We'd compare the median score to uh, the norms, where we, what was typical for that particular uh, grade. And if that median score was lower than what, what was typical, then that told us that there was a class-wide problem or something else going on. It could have been curriculum being used. It could have been quality of teaching or whatever. But that gave us a whole different uh, view of, you know, this this student's um, issue because not only is this student struggling, but most of the class is struggling. The other thing um, about the CBMs that I really like is that you can also tease out motivation. So the conducting these what they call can't do won't do's and having the kiddo come back in and and telling them oh this is what you scored the first time you know trying to motivate them to do better score higher a lot of times what we were finding is these kids when they came back in and there was some type of incentive placed on um, their performance if they could beat their score they would their scores would go way up so that mm -hmm. told us that it wasn't a can't do it was that a, they wouldn't do it and so that, then we knew that there was a motivational issue, but I just think that, you know, that's the part I think is missing from um, our schools and, and, you know, providing those interventions early on, identifying those kids early on, providing those interventions, progress monitoring, doing all that stuff before that child is, is referred. And I think that, you know, that's part of the reason why we're getting poor referrals. Um, so I think regardless, uh, again, regardless of the model that we're, we're working through, I think early identification is, is the most important. We know research shows that the earlier we intervene, um, the better outcomes these uh, children have. So, um, yeah, I mean, well, TEA Learn has a training on there, has Althea uh, Woodrow. 
I'm doing a lot of the instructing. It's a, like a Canvas course, and uh -huh. it's called Creating an Assessment Plan. And it gives you an example of an assessment plan. And guess what's on the assessment plan? What's Every that? CBM I have ever talked about. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I hope they make yeah. a comeback. I mean, mm -hmm. whether it's in RTI uh, program, MTSS program, or if it's us as evaluators integrating it into our uh, evaluations, I think they provide us with another data point. Um, they're quick and easy to give. They're tied to curriculum where our norm reference tests aren't. Uh, I just, and there's so many years of research that shows the, the validity and, uh, of these particular measures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, it's, um, I mean, they're, they're really trying to teach people that there are so many different types. Like people will say, oh, well, we don't need a curriculum-based measure. We have our i-station scores or we have yeah. our this score or we have our our um summative evaluation or summative assessments but they're trying to teach people now that there are different categories and uh, classifications of assessments and each one has its own purpose so mm -hmm. you can't just like just because you have these formative and summative assessments that doesn't rule out the reason the need for uh, a um the curriculum-based measures for progress monitoring. They're just needed for different purposes. And you can't really have a good assessment system if you don't have all the pieces of the assessment going on. Exactly. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of learning for all teachers to learn about You know what each of those different types of assessments, the purposes they serve and what the roles they play in, in driving a, the instruction in the schools. So I, I feel like, too, a lot of things um, sort of happen in our profession um, that cause us to question how our role will be in the future, what might change in our, you know, for our roles. Uh, I know I was talking to Georgine one time and she said, well, you know, one of the fears was, you know, that um, you know, the, the role of the diagnostician would be phased out at some point. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot there, you know, we, we have a lot of questions about our roles and our responsibilities and how they might change with new laws that come out and, um, and changes in the child find practices and sort of, I, I was just curious as to, um, you know, all professions do evolve over time. Yeah. Did, how do you see our role evolving to be something more professional, more, uh, more clear, clearly understood by all, um, mm -hmm. and also more particular to our expertise where we're not, you know, doing busy work that we don't need to be doing that other people can do that. We're sort of, we, you know, I don't need to order bus transportation for people. That's right. You know, but I'm doing yes. that. <laughs> yes. We get these sort of, you know, meaningless roles, things, tasks that we have to do that, you know, somebody else could be doing that has less training, <laughs> but, mm -hmm. um, how do you see our role evolving over time to where, you know, to make ourselves better professionals? Well, I want to acknowledge the, first of all, like the changes that we've, we've seen in the field. I mean, when you talk about go back to think about the timeline from, you know, 2015 is when we introduced um, CSEP before that, you know, we were doing, there was a lot of, I mean, when I started out, we were a simple discrepancy model. Then we moved into, 
you know, looking at patterns and stuff like that. Um, and then moved into really working um, through uh, cross battery, etc. But from the time that uh, over the past, uh, I would say, what, since 2015 and on, there's been a lot of changes, like you guys know, I mean, you're on the front lines there. But honestly, uh, I welcome most of the changes that's been made because um, many of the the updates that have been uh, made through TEA align well with what we've been saying about with CSEP since 2015. So thinking about, we've been talking about looking beyond standard scores. We've been talking about eliminating over-testing, being more targeted in our testing. We've been talking about using multiple sources of data. Um, we've been talking about identifying patterns through the integration of multiple sources of data and not through just looking at score discrepancies. Um, and that's, again, it, all these changes that's been made, um, you know, I, I believe, and I know Dr. Schultz believes that, you know, they align very well with what we've been saying, um, which I think it, those things needed to happen. There was a lot of malpractice happening in the field. Um, and I mean, it, I know that it's not alleviated everything, but I think we're on a de uh, very different uh, positive track right now. But I think our field's been really struggling with some of those outdated processes for years. And like you said, our profession has to evolve to be, to remain relevant. And um, so, you know, the more research that comes out, uh, you know, the better that we're going to be able to uh, identify properly kids with, um, with disabilities, et cetera. So I think it's so important that we stay attuned and we adjust our practices um, to those things, which I think there for a while, we were kind of stagnant. Uh, we weren't really, uh, uh, growing. And then, you know, again, within this ever changing field with all of the responsibilities that lie on, on evaluators, I think it's, again, it's imperative that we stay current with, uh, the research that's coming out, uh, continue reading, continue attending PD, collaborating with others. Um, you know, it's, it's not a field where we can get certified and then never attend any type of professional development after that, because things change too fast. Uh, and we have to always be learning, always growing. Um, so I think when you think about the future of the educational diagnostician, um, I think we're going to see more of even more of a targeted use of norm reference tests. And what I mean by that is I see us in the future you know, uh, we look at all the, the G areas, uh, if you will, when we're looking at, at our cognitive processes, I think we'll probably be even more targeted with more research that comes out. We just focus on those areas of, of concern, right? The areas of struggle. Um, our roles are going to change too with this emergence of digital tests. Um, you know, the WJ5 is going to be fully digital. Um, so I know that a lot of evaluators who love using Q Interactive right now, so that's a nice, um, you know, uh, that's already kind of set the foundation for what we would expect with the, with the WJ. Um, but I wonder, I've often thought about, I wonder what AI, how AI might impact our, our decision-making processes and our report writing processes in the future. 
uh, chat GPT. We're seeing a lot about that now on the news. Uh, kind of scares me because of, obviously I'm not one of those individuals that believes that we should be focus, you know, using a software program to be making these decisions. We have to, again, keep current with our own professional development. And um, it takes that human um, uh, knowledge and aspect as well. But I think there's a lot of poss possibilities for our field. Um, and I think we, as, as a unit, as, as evaluators, we have the power to kind of shape what our future looks like. Um, so I think we just all need to get involved. We all need to, um, again, I mentioned Dr. Schultz several times because we've worked together for so many years, but he, he always talks about starting that fire. We have to, we have to advocate for our field. We have to advocate for our profession. Um, but I do think things are, are, are going to change for us. I do wonder, like you said, if there's going to be a point where um, evaluators will be able to spend more time, more of their time focusing on the assessment process versus doing all this other stuff that's um, kind of, like you said, busy work. Um, but I think sky's the limit. I think there's a lot of great um, possibilities for our field going forward. All right. We got a lot of things in the chat here. Ed says I should have played the song. It should be five o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> it's five o'clock somewhere. Um, and uh, he said we should include IQ scores with our story. <laughs> with um, our what? With our store, with the story. Oh, <laughs> yeah. All right. So, um, Amy says, please don't test me. I'm probably a slow learner who just works really hard. That's her story. <laughs> Kelly said, I would love to tell my story, but not my IQ. <laughs> okay. Everybody's lighthearted today. Um, and um, Amy says she can also share more about the MTSS cohort stuff from the Region 11. And I, I, I know. Um, oh, yeah. The region centers, I think it goes out to the region centers that they they get trained in DBI. So uh, this, something that's coming out is Texas is one of nine states only um, that is adopting DBI, which is data-based um, uh, data um, interventions or data-based in, um, informed making decisions based on data. Um, and uh, it's all based on screeners and curriculum based measures and uh, I mean all this training from the DBI uh, the, the National Council on uh, Intensive Intervention basically is going to be providing all this training through TEA to uh, administrators and teachers and um, and it's like every three weeks they have to come back and re and we have to have a team and it says you have to have a multidisciplinary team to review all this data on a regular basis every three weeks and so it's it's going to be a lot of work. I mean, uh, I thought about making the title for the one where I talked to Deanna Clemens about this is roll roll up your sleeves, Texas. But <laughs> maybe you know it's time to get to work <laughs> um, because I feel like that's what it's going to be. I, um, but um, uh, Chantel says uh, Gen Ed does not progress progress monitor as well. Yes, absolutely. Uh -oh. Not they, yet. They there's always do. a yet. 
they'll learn. <laughs> uh, she said that's actually she said they do progress monitor. Oh, does progress yeah. monitor pretty well? Okay, yeah. yeah, my my um. I wanted to respond to Ed's comment about we should include IQ scores. Um, why would we do that? We we don't want to overemphasize or overfocus on IQ scores. Why would we want? Why would we ask? For I that? think he's being silly. I know. Um, yeah. So um, we offer great. Amy says that the, at Region Eleven they offer great new diagnostician support program, especially for those coming out of poor certification <laughs> programs. Um, and you know. Um, I, I've started coming across diagnosticians who just don't even know what cross battery is anymore because they, they're so new. <laughs> wow. So I'm like, oh, well, maybe we got a clean slate where some of us are kind of having to unlearn some things, you uh-huh. know, learning where we spent so long on cut scores. I know myself, like when I first got became a diagnostician, I had a whole box of like RTI and CBMs and all that kind of stuff. And I was trying out all this stuff on kids in my assessments, just experimenting and trying to show that in my assessments. And as I got more into cross battery and cut scores and the whole, you know, triple discrepancies of, you know, aligning stars, like I've just slowly forgot about all that. Another day I was just like cleaning out a box of all my old stuff and couldn't believe how I was doing this way back then and it was like I forgot about it and Mm. it's like I have to go back and re reorient myself to to doing it again um and you know but we we can all learn this stuff it's and you know it will just make our evaluation so much richer um Kelly says she's mentoring a potential diag and she's only getting training in one battery Hmm. that's just crazy yeah. mm-hmm. Ed says MSU Diags get the WJ COG achievement um, and uh, uh, oral language the WISC, the Wyatt, the KBC, the CTOP and the GORT in their training um, he said CBMs are aw- awesome but they are tough sell uh, and then Martha is saying CBMs are tough sell because of the lack of personnel one teacher uh-huh. with 30 kids in the classroom with all kinds of needs cannot do it all. Unfortunately, there's no money to invest in more people. I wish there was more support. I've talked about that on here. We need like a person who just has that role. It's not even administering the CBMs. There are a lot of CBMs where that, that you can give to a whole class at one time. And it's only like a minute to give or two minutes or five minutes. And it really doesn't take a lot. Um, but really analyzing that data is what takes a long time. You have to do it every three three weeks for hundreds of kids and then creating norms out of that, local norms. That's where all the, the manpower really needs to come in. And administrators don't have time for that. They're And, you know, people say, well, we don't have time for this. But I think there's a lot of stuff that we're doing that isn't evidence-based and isn't scientifically based that we could just be doing something different and replacing all that stuff with something better but even making the change does take a lot of training and um, getting people to shift gears it, it takes a lot of effort just to get them to switch gears even if it's something better and easier um, and more profi- more proficient um, Becca says I wish we had access to um, my research articles, educators 
should be able to access research without having to pay for it. Oh, absolutely. You know, this is the beauty of having two kids in college. I use their library access more I... than they do, I'm sure. <laughs> so I'm always looking up, you know, articles through their, their portals. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not right that once we get into the field and we don't have access to all the research articles, the new research that's coming out. Um, Martha says educators need more support. Uh, she says she used differentiated instruction, instruction along with RTI, and it was a lot of work. It was, she was very effective, but it was just really tiring, a lot of work, planning, implementing, assessing, planning some more over and over again. And Candace says she bets CBMs are a hard sell because they're aligned with Common Core and not Teaks. Now that has been a challenge in the past and you do have to know, just like any assessment tool that's out there, you do need to know, you know, the benefits and um, sort of the, the limitations of every tool that you use, just like formal testing. But there are so many more CBMs out there now that are in the category of what you call general outcome measures and general outcome measures aren't based really on a particular curriculum. They're just a skill that gets better and better and better so that you can really use it with anybody, no matter what curriculum you're in. So you just need to know, is your curriculum based measure also a general outcome measure or is it particular to a certain curriculum? And that is definitely very important to know. Um, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of, uh, we went off on a CBM tangent here, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know. You know, that's definitely one of uh, my big um, pushes. So a lot of discussions end up going down that road. Um, any closing words before we go out? I want to leave us with a really, you talk about resiliency, resiliency, resiliency. And I, I have a really, I listen to this video probably a couple times a week, um, along with one or two others, just to keep me going. Um, but I, I thought I'd play it for everybody. It, it's a, it's a inspirational video on resiliency. Yeah. The before you do that, the only thing I wanted to just uh, again thank you for having me and thank everyone for being here and for all that you do for the field. Um, and if you are interested in participating and contributing your story. You can always email me at doctammy7 at gmail.com. What I'm thinking about doing is putting a list together of potential participants. And then what I'll do is schedule a Zoom with those individuals to kind of go over the criteria and, you know, how long the passage can or the story can be, et cetera. So I hope uh, I can get some of you to con contribute. You got me. I, I participated in your survey. I was one of the 419. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anybody else have anything to add? You can raise your hand if you want to speak or if you want to put in the chat or if you want to just show your reaction, you can hold down your profile and show any kind of reaction you want just to show that you're listening. Chet says, good job. Got a heart from Anita. So thank you, everybody. All right, I'm going to close this out. Please do stay for this um, YouTube video. Uh, I Like I said, I listen to this several times a week along with one or two others just to keep me motivated because it does take a lot when, you're, when you've just got so much work. But here it is.
You can write everything down if you want to. Be brave enough to write every one of your goals down. But I'm going to tell you something. Life's going to hit you in your mouth and you got to do me a huge favor. Your why has to be greater than that knockdown. And I love it. Buster Douglas got knocked out. Nobody ever got knocked out by Mike Tyson and ever got back out. It was almost a 10 count. He was stumbling. Was stumbling. Four, Four, three, two, two one. one. Ding, ding, ding. Saved by the bell. He goes to his corner. The whole world is like, that's it. Once he comes back out, that's it. Mike's going to just hammer him. And exactly that. Mike Tyson came out like, I got him. I got this kid up against the rope. Listen to me, many of you right now, life's got you up against the rope. You can't give up. You can't give in. Listen to me, if it was easy, everybody would do it. And if life's got you backed up, I need you to do what Buster Douglas did. Buster Douglas start fighting back. The world was shocked. Goliath has been knocked down. What happened? And they went to Buster Douglas and they asked Buster Douglas simply like, what happened? And Buster Douglas said, listen to me, it's real simple. Before my mother died, she told the whole world that I was going to beat Mike Tyson. And two days before the fight, my mother died. Buster Douglas had, he had a decision to make. When his mother died, he could die with his mother. Or he made a decision, I can wake up and I can live for mom. And he knocked Mike Tyson out simply because his why was greater than that punch. His why was greater than defeat. His why was greater than his trial and his tribulation. And I'm telling you, if you don't know what your why is, and your why isn't strong, you're going to get knocked out every single day. So, your why, I hope, is greater than your tribulation at the end of this school year. And you don't get knocked out. And just remember that. Um, it's definitely a great inspirational video. Um, it, I found it on Goalcast um, about Buster Douglas being the only person to knock Mike, Mike Tyson out. We can do this. We can, we can knock this 2022-23 school year out. And summer is on its way. Thank you all for joining.